0: Hello, people of Earth, and welcome to Casual Professionals. I'm your host, Sam Kelly Jr., and today, I'm talking to Nick Waterhouse, touring musician, record producer, and king of quarantine with his DJ set, Cocktail Hour. In this conversation, we talk about the arc of Nick's career, producing records with bands like A La Laws, collaborating with Leon Bridges, and the things that inspired him to turn his passion into his profession.
1: I know I, I stole the sunspot. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> no, I'm a shade guy, actually. Yeah, word. That's, yeah. In in a in a interpersonal dynamic, I'm always the shade spot and friend or date is uh the, the sun person. So And you're perfect.
0: the 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 skitch Patterson with the shades too. That's right.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um man, well Nick, thank you so much for being here. Uh Casual Professionals Numero Uno.
1: My pleasure to be here. Here, I'll make you feel more comfortable. <laughs> You can tell whether I'm telling lies. I know. Make me want to put my specs on. I want contacts because I'm down here in SoCal. Because prescription shades. It's a place of beauty and self-beautification, so don't feel the pressure too much. You're in a nice (laughs) setting, at least.
0: You know, it's odd that um, it sounds messed up. It's been actually a bit nicer to be here during the pandemic because everything has been so slow. I had one moment in, like, Abbott Kinney. Mm -hmm. Everything's dead, closed. And I was like, you know... This is actually a pleasant little stroll
1: I have to say it's really grim, but um i'm a I'm a native son of Southern California, and the pandemic has made it feel like what I always heard was the charm of the greater Los Angeles area when people were moving here in droves at the beginning of the nineteen hundreds <laughs> right a little more of a discovery yeah and and just you you recognize that so many of the neighborhoods um and even the construction here was made for a time before traffic. And so now when you're here and there's an absence of traffic, it's like every other modern city is like this industrial age, like foot traffic zone. And uh, now that it's all free and, and there are these deserted streets, you're suddenly like, oh, I understand why someone would want to live in Hollywood. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or Abbot <Abikini>, Kenny, I mean. <laughs> Me, personally, I have my own mixed feelings about the way that Los Angeles feels and the rhythm of it, but uh, I think it's well-suited for quarantined life, honestly.
0: Yeah, and I will say, Abbott Kinney also had the worst DJ I've ever heard at this restaurant. You don't say. Yeah, everything just sounded like it was at a photo shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you being here. I mean, kind of the the aim and uh, idea for this series is really just to talk to people about, you know, turning your passion into your profession, and I feel like, like myself like it seems like you've had this guiding light from a really early age from when you first heard music it sounds like at family parties and things like that that things really perked up so i'd really love to hear you know kind of the earliest impression you had where you clicked into music and it was just fun and pure
1: um i think i think that for me uh it was like music was this recorded music especially but uh, it, it coexisted with performed music it it was the thing that sort of captivated all uh, it cut across like age and class and gender and race um, without me being able to perceive that at an early age it was like wow like the two things everybody seems to like are food and music you know for sure um And I was really struck by the fact that it was when uh, when you're a kid, you feel incredibly powerless, like you can't control your world. And it was the thing that seemed like um, more active than, say, reading a book, which I'm a big, I have a degree in literature, but uh, it was like the same way that you could get lost in a whole world, but there were even less blocks because it was the sort of shared communal experience. And um, I definitely saw that. In my parents, it was like a thing where they they seemed to be able to control everything else, just as parental figures. Except that was the thing that controlled them when it was happening. Like they were wrapped by it. They were interested in it. And my um, my dad, I think, really noticed that I was interested in music early, and so would sort of tell me it was an amused adult behavior. Like, oh, oh, you like you like that? I remember. Remember that episode of The Simpsons that the Ramones were on? Oh, yeah. Just <laughs> clicking into my punk rock background. Hey, man. Absolutely. Well, my dad, this is, this is, there's, there's a lot of different things that influence me, but I remember that happened, I think when I was like five or six, and my dad, he's like, you like that stuff? And the next day, he pulled out, you know, his shoebox of cassettes from the early 80s, and he told me all about, going to punk shows from 76 seven, eight, nine. he was like my my friends in high school after i stopped hanging out with the stoner surf guys with long hair i hung out with this band called the crowd and they would they were like an orange county proto hardcore band like it turned yeah, out that he cool. was and he would be he's like well let me tell you about the cuckoo's nest that used to be where you know black flag and circle jerks would play and and uh he just seemed really amused and and it was something so strange and remote from again that like broke the child parent relationship
0: yeah like when you start seeing your you know parental figures as people mm-hmm. <laughs> and the things that move them and kind of give them this character and this life aside from you know the
1: rules or whatever happens and you, and your household really too like um and so in that way i meant it it, it, it meant to me that it was like a breakdown of at least what i perceived as like conventional again relationships like uh and it was so fascinating to me it was just like something that uh the radio was like always on and i was just i was into every like everything that would be broadcast i was interested in because it was something outside of this limited world that i was in which was like the household school i always wanted to leave like i always wanted to be out in the world and 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 I was really, like, voracious in that I had a taste for wanting sort of, like, to get lost in things other than these very average and ordinary lives. Which I guess, you know, if, if I were a different type of guy, I would be a sailor or, like, a, like, something that involved travel. And this just happened to be, like, I feel like those all tie in. Like, making, making worlds to live in is what really making records is and writing songs is, and working on other people's songs. Like, you get to live in somebody else's world. And um, the early versions of that, I think, really were these fantastic things that seemed untouchable. Like, I couldn't relate to the people who also made them at that point. But I recognized that it transcended all these other boundaries that were in my parents' world, my parents' peers' world, the kids I grew up with. Like, that was the one thing that seemed like free. Right. <laughs> Everything else seemed like very incredibly rigid in its outlook.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's something that's unique about soul music. And, you know, my early connections to hearing, you know, music from the early mid-60s was really passed through both of my parents who were very different. Mm. You know, my dad was born in 1926, you know, was, went through World War II, Korea, Vietnam, civil rights leader, my mother about 20 years younger than him and, you know, it kind of was like in the early Kennedy zone and was really Peter, Paul and Mary and, you know, got me a lot more into guitar music. But there, I remember in that kind of, you know, age 6 to 10 or 11, starting to hear the Bill Withers and the Marvin Gays and the Nina Simones and all of a sudden the living room just kind of erupting in this way where my parents became human and they're twisting and I'm like playing drums with chopsticks from the takeout and doing that kind of thing. And something about how soul music has transcended and become this very multi-generational thing. Uh, I'm curious, you know, what your exposure to that started to feel like and your your come on to that. Was it kind of born from living room twists? Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Um, It was born from, there was this really cool tension in my parents' tastes. I think this is this is really interesting for me to hear, too. Where where did your dad grow up? So
0: he's East Coast. He was born um, just in Greenwich, Connecticut. Okay. Um, and then came up, you know, kind of New York adjacent for the most part. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the course of his military career was in places like West Virginia, Georgia, places like that. And then came out, we got to the Pacific Northwest, you know, much later. You yeah. Know, like in late 60s. Yeah. Um, but See,
1: Seattle had a big... My my understanding is Seattle had a big pipeline of of Afro American servicemen like that was a big reason that like you know even that like Ray Charles Quincy Jones connection happened was because of that community there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The one story I wish I had more details on was uh, my folks going to Quincy's fortieth birthday. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that having a lot of fun little pockets and
1: corners. Any details <laughs> about any Quincy Jones event are 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 heartily needed. Yeah. Um, well, my parents. Yeah, so my dad was a fireman. He's retired now. And um, that was where I saw, like, that was, like, my exposure to parties and this, like, social atmosphere and how music functions socially, which, again, wasn't, like, incredibly... This wasn't on an intellectual level, but it's only when I think about it later. Um, what was funny was was that the fire department, kind of like the military, it's, it's a very traditional... uh It it was an incredibly traditional sort of like uh, gender conservative, like it was like men and their wives and like Mm -hmm. men and their big families. And so like all the women were really into soul music, R&B rooted stuff. And half of the guys were because uh, specifically my dad was an Anaheim and a Santa Ana fireman. So it was like uh, heavily Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of the SoCal sort of like oldies culture that comes up around Art LeBeau and barbecues and multi-generational Latino families has a big part to do with what party music is in Southern California, which is its own thing that's very special. And I think specifically like I was exposed to a lot of that just being a kid of an Anaheim fireman. And uh, my mom was actually the one who had what I would call consider more, like, soul-oriented tastes. She was somebody who was, like, a huge Aretha fan, a huge Van Morrison fan. There was a lot of, like, the wives dancing yeah, <laughs> at at backyard barbecues and parties when, like, yes, Gladys Knight would come on or, you know, what's interesting is, is because of my parents' age, my parents are a little younger in that they're, like, late boomers, so they were in high school in the mid-70s. Um, my mom has... Uh, I got both of their record collections, and my mother's record collection was stuff like, Carol King, uh, Tapestry, you know Stevie Wonder's Talking Book, BB, a bunch of BB King. It was like this sort of like college girl in the seventies, bohemian. Like no matter what university you went to, you ended up with this. You you had a a, a military surplus jacket. And some great like American soul music in your record collection and you threw pottery on the weekends. (laughs) Um, And I really I love that about my mom, whereas my dad's collection was like rock and roll. And I could tell because he came up in um, the 70s as a surfer. It was like to him, music wasn't serious. It was just always around and he really liked it. And I loved engaging with him as I got older. Finding out he's like, oh yeah, did I ever tell you I saw the band Sweet? You know, or like, you know, he'd be he'd be talking about something, and I'm like, you saw this band what? And he's like, oh, I just went with some of my friends, you know. So his LPs were things like, you know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, but also the Yardbirds, um, punk rock records, Elvis Costello records, and my mom's was much more like R and B and soul. But the thing that was unified among those was that all these proto-rock bands like the Stones or the Yardbirds were covering the blues songs that I heard on my mom's albums as well and I think of stuff again I've talked about in other interviews like Chain of Fools which has like amazing guitar playing from Joe South and Don Covey hmm I I everyone knows that intro. Yeah. It's like that in my girl. It's just crazy though cuz that's <laughs> like that's deep. That's like both deep gospel playing and and sort of like straight ahead blues playing fused together, which is what the soul music thing was and um that seed was sort of planted in my brain um along with just the notion of you know party music of of music being a social atmosphere that changes all these people that I normally see as like rigid and orderly, which I loved as a kid.
0: Yeah, well, it's so interesting. I feel like you have this vision into, you know, who are the players, what's behind the players, what's the relationship between these genres. I mean, uh, similar to you, like, I, my punk rock exposure and things like that came from my sister. Um, technically a half-sister, but my sister. We're super tight. She's the reason that I really am passionate about film. And, you know, I used to sit in the... You know, front seat and her cabriolet and I couldn't put my feet on the ground because there were so many cassettes piled up. <laughs> and she's very MTV generation and, you know, really got me into that. But seeing these worlds connect over time between the freedom of punk rock and that spirit and then also like the history and and the players and the the civil rights and social justice things that came through soul music... At what point did you have that curiosity? I mean, especially, I think, you know, coming from a white family in Southern California, where did you open to that appeal and that sensitivity? Like, did you find yourself surrounded by people of color in a way, or you started seeing these faces and hearing these voices and got motivated to explore? Like, it, I think you just have this amazing knack, and it's not surprising that you have this literary uh, <laughs> academic background, too, because I think that there's there's something in you that wants to go deeper into it. Where'd yeah, that come from?
1: Yeah, it's... Um... I mean, I was always like a deeply empathetic and sensitive person. Like since I was a kid, mm-hmm. that was my parents. Where I was like, you know, I wasn't like a tough kid. I was. I also grew up in this sort of like, again, very manly fireman. All the all the things we did were active and about toughness and like displays of sort of like power and ability. Did you
0: push into sports?
1: uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I raced raced dirt bikes from age 5 to 15. Okay. Um, I played baseball. I played every sport except football, basically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they weren't... I didn't have like a flat-top, cruel dad. I mean, here's what I love about the fire department. They're about serving the people. They're about being part of a community... A big part of the difference between where I grew up, which was like in Huntington Beach, Costa Mesa, was that kids I went to school with were rarely exposed to other communities. And I really treasured that about my dad. Like, I was living at the fire station a couple of days a week when my mom was working full-time in LA. Both my parents went into other worlds, and... um I don't think that I was particularly, like... I w- I wasn't put out of my comfort zone the way that other people have been, and I, I wasn't really poor, but I think I was just aware of other worlds. And besides that, my natural curiosity and passion and empathy had a lot to do with wanting to know more about the things I cared about, and, and that was music. And um, listening to records you know, you can listen to um, a song 500 times and you really want to know more about it. Like, why does this move me? And my natural inclination was who was there? Who recorded it? What's his story? Why did he get here? What kind of stories is he telling? How can he make me feel this way when we've never met he or she? And um, really early on, I was really drawn to Black music, because black music was... That's what, like, all popular music is. It's, like, American music and global music is rooted in black American music. And um, it was just, like... It's so compelling, and and I felt so strongly... I'm just, like... I was so grateful for it, I needed to know everything I could, (laughs) you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not out of, like... It's not anthropological. It's just more like a, it's almost like a spiritual thing. And say it's a feeling. Yeah. That going after um, that. And and to me that just felt. It's kind of like how I ended up here. I didn't. I kept uh, living in denial of like what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it or whether I should do it. And if I was honest, like I mean, I have journals from fifteen, twenty and 10 years ago where i'm essentially asking myself the same questions over and over again like what do i actually care about
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and uh and i and because i was that sensitive kid also like i wouldn't tell anybody that i felt that way because i was too i guess you could call it shy but it was also like that's my it, like i if if i was spiritual in any way it was that way <laughs> like that was the way that i felt you know
0: yeah well That kind of raises, you know, an interesting point in when you started seeing music in that way, and I think you said this on Cocktail Hour a little while back, is, um, you know, especially amongst the times we're living in with, you know, George Floyd, you know, sparking, you know, uh, a new uprising or movement, whatever you want to call it. um, I remember you distinctly calling out, like, supporting black labor. And so at what point did you start to listen to these records, you're kind of flame is on learning about music where you realize that it was a job and that it was, it required labor and that it required steps to do it. Uh, yeah. What, what was the point that did that? And then if, you know, going past that a second, like when did you make your first
1: song? <laughs> Those two things come in a different order. Okay. Um, I, okay. I'm thinking about, so the first time I started playing with other people playing music what's kind of funny is um the first racism I actually really uh experienced against black people overtly was from a guitar teacher I had who was a white guy from Chicago in his 40s who was really into like heavy metal and technical shredding and stuff and he he hated what I liked and uh, he kept being like, this is really simple, this is basic. And I remember bringing, I was 12 or 13, and I remember bringing uh, like some Atlantic arm, like a Don Covey record maybe or something. And he was like, wow, this is like, there's no thought to this. It's very easy to do. And then he said, you'd feel different if you had to be around these people. Whoa. (laughs) And I was like, I was just like, I was so blown away. And I remember being angry. And like, I, I, I remember like, it made me want to cry at the time. Yeah. How old were you? Like 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. But I already hated him. Like we had a really, (laughs) we had like a very adversarial relationship, but I was a kid and I was playing music with just kids in my proximity and the, person that I was also learning about music from was um, this guy, Jimmy Portillo, who's a big uh, paintbrush, mustached, elderly Chicano guy who, you know, was like, he was like telling me about the premieres and all this great sort of like Chicano rock and roll, L.A. Like what I realized later was the fabric of Richard Berry and the Rieus brothers who were Filipino field workers and Chicano kids. And this was like part of the thing of what I understood about Southern California music. And so like the first band I was in, I'm in a band with a a Persian kid and an Asian kid and two other guys from down the block. And we play with other people, but we're, we're in Huntington beach and we're just like the, the, the general narrative in Huntington Beach is like kids getting together and playing music. The reality is, is what you're playing is you're playing some form of the blues initially unless you're emulating what's on the radio, which was alternative rock at the time. And um,
0: That's where I was.
1: Yeah. Playing Everclear. Yeah, <laughs> man. Oh, I learned a lot of those songs too. Yeah, like, you totally. Know, it was just this thing where I think there was this summer between um, f- my freshman year and my sophomore year and it's really funny, you were playing the a Laws earlier, and Pedram was like, he refused to believe that I knew all these garage rock bands because I had sort of, like, my Nuggets and, and 60s music summer, but I didn't like any of the... I didn't like the Doors or the Beatles or anything. If anything, I liked the Stones because my uncle gave me the first three LPs, but, like... Hot takes. there were, it. <laughs> <laughs> there were... In my opinion, when I was 15, I was yeah, like... fuck the Beatles. Yeah, man. Like... <laughs> Well, my personal theory about the Beatles (laughs) is that they—the reason they're successful is that they implied uh, Black American enthusiasm and soul to European harmony, which sounded fucked up to my ears. And to this day, I still can't really, like— get with it. You know, like, it's not for me.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting thing, Uh, you know, especially, you know, a lot of the record nights in Seattle and stuff where people go out throwing parties. It's a lot of the Northern Soul stuff, which is that similar kind of frenzy that happened, but, like, none of us were out there. No were really out there.
1: I mean, I love it, but it's an interesting sort of dichotomy. That's a whole other thing. So, labor. You were asking about black labor. Yeah, when you started
0: seeing, you know, musicians as laborers and music as a job. That has to do
1: with... My relationship with my dad's world, which my dad was the vice president of the union and my pseudo-godfather sort of uncle figure, Richard, was another fireman and he was the president of the union. They were like tapping their phones. The city was tapping their phones. Like I understood that labor was a struggle and I understood that reading something like Peter Goralnick's book on... Soul music. It was both exciting. It was exciting. I was excited the same reason that Elvis was excited by going to a black nightclub, which is that this is a world outside a rigid, structured world that I know, personally, as a white kid, growing up where I'm growing up. And that nightlife was always inherently clandestine and illegal in some way. Exciting. (laughs) Even today, I mean, let's be honest, like the way that venues are run, if they're a club, there's still something like slightly off, no matter how professional it gets. It's like, hey, we're giving you a 36 pack of beer and not healthy food, you know, like yeah, adult man paid in pizza. Hey, you might get electrocuted by this thing because we didn't repair it for the last 15 years. Like there's always this aspect and there's this element to it of like, well, what do you expect that you're not a accountant, you know? Um, and so my awareness of black labor came probably when I got to college. I mean, honestly, and it was just because I spent so long trying to learn about all these players and people that wrote songs and also the continuum of it as like a folk art where there's shared creation that has to do with, you know, John Lee Hooker probably didn't actually write three of the melodies on his first LP. It's something he remembered from where he grew up before he moved up to Detroit and cut stuff in a back room of a drugstore, and then the guy who owned that place took half the writing, you know? (laughs) And, And I don't know. That stuff, too, to me was like, this is a whole... I mean, reading, like, Howard Zinn's People's History of America, too, when I was 19, that all those things lock together eventually when you start to really think about it and I think it's sad that it took that much work for me to even get to that point of thinking that way because just people don't you're doing the work all the way through so it's bound <laughs> yeah. to happen. but I was really passionate about it and I was you know like I think obsession is a stupid word that's bandied about often in music press it's like do you want your heart surgeon to be obsessed with having the best heart surgery like no it's you're just like it's I don't know what to call it but I was compelled to understand it and and find out more and and um sort of like be analytical in my thought and be open to concepts and and some people get off the train way before that and they're like well I learned the blues box on guitar so that's that let's get on to learning uh you know uh <laughs> You know, what's actually then you end up like the guitar teacher I was talking like about some which pentatonic is, shredding. Yeah, well, <laughs> the guy who's like, "Well, pff, yeah, you're on pentatonic. Let's talk about like the all the other scales and all the possible reharms that also eventually I learned a lot of black minds did as well." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, it but that's the history of America to me. Um, yeah.
0: Well, and now I'm really curious as you go into starting, you know, you're coming up on LP5, very exciting. Um but th- looking at Never Twice or looking at, you know, formulating, like, the Nick Waterhouse band. Mm. You know, you've gone and played alongside so many people along the way. When it comes to forming that record, like, tell me about the-, the passion behind it. And also, along the way, like, did you feel any trepidation?
1: The new record or the third? Which The third, yeah. Never Twice? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I feel nothing but trepidation. <laughs> um, I mean, the reality of what I do is that um, I guess it's kind of like – it's like everything else in life. People can really – people can bullshit you about the fact that they weren't afraid to – be in the car wreck they were in or to apply to, uh, some job on the other side of the country and move there. But I think there's, there's a whole modicum of things that you go through when you commit to anything on that level. I mean, I, I have incredibly, like profoundly mixed feelings to this day about doing what I do, uh, in front of a public. Um, you know, like a month ago, I was considering s- stopping. I mean, I do this every couple months with myself where I'm like, this is, this doesn't feel right. Everything always feels wrong to me, <laughs> but I recognize that uh, that everything that feels wrong at times is like also society at large. And that's just about struggling with like how you find your own place and you find your voice i guess and if i am honest about it the records that i make are my voice for better or for worse i can't change it and i really couldn't i did everything as best as i could every time i did it now if you want to ask me about specific records each record is so funny because it's almost like it's like this strange uh Book of the Dead, like, rebirth and death every time I'm making an album where I'm almost, like, reincarnated as a different iteration of myself and with an entirely different set of circumstances. Like, especially being quarantined now, having to think a lot about and reflect on these periods, there were so many things that were, like, Really, I mean, there's tons of positives. This is what's funny is I always just take all the positives for granted and I I tend to focus on what I have issue with. But, uh, you know, making like that third record, that record was insane because that record was really the terminus of something that started against my will when I made the first album. Because the first album was made as an album out of desperation and out of really bad circumstances and like perpetuatingly bad circumstances <laughs> like one thing led to another to another that like I to this day I still have plenty of regrets about that period of time because it was so hard and it was like that was that was like a period that I actually was uh coming out of like very little hope and uh I was financially like way in a hole. And what's funny is, by the time I made Never Twice, it was like three times as bad as that first record. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean...
0: Because the first one was kind of this tidal wave when someplace got cut a yes, little bit, right? Yeah. And then that led to maybe some external pressures and maybe a lot of excitement to make the first album.
1: And internal pressures. I yeah. mean, even that was like... Mm-hmm. I I still have like anxiety nightmares about that period of time because, you know, what's funny is, is you make a 45 with your friends and all my friends from that 45 remain my friends, but the band that happened out of that 45 after that ended up on half of that record. I mean, I had people like quitting in the middle of the session for that album. Um, and everybody was kids and nobody understood like what, like the reality was, was I was suddenly confronted with that. I was about to participate in the music business. And, uh, and I was already like over the barrel, and everybody else participating in it. They could come or go as they pleased, and so conflict. It, this always happens to like you know baby bands, but it wasn't really a band. That's what's weird is it was my, it was me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in this arranged marriage, yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so that record happened very fast, and that band went on the road really, really fast. And it probably wasn't up to my standards from the start in terms of running it, running running a band that I would make people pay to see kind of thing. Um, let alone pay to see me. I mean the I made that record and sometimes all my records feel like a demo for another singer to to come and sing on. That's, like, how I how I get through it sometimes.
0: Yeah, sure. And that's also your producer brain probably clicking into. Absolutely, in yeah. yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time I made Never Twice, that was... What was weird was that was, like... I mean... I... I got pretty badly banged up uh, on the business end of things after what was pretty much four years of straight work. Like, very... Very hard work, and I had to get rid of my apartment. I had I wasn't living anywhere. Um, I was sort of like dealing with uh, the changes in the industry now that I saw as. I mean, I, I felt like it was what the future was gonna be, but I now know that's what the future ended. Yeah, up it was being. at that
0: perfect turning point. That's yeah. why I think it's so interesting, particularly about that record, because I, I think it shares a lot with your initial inspiration, but it does feel like it's at this turning point. It's something that most people ended up discovering, maybe more online. You've got some cool features in it that ended up taking off, which maybe we'll get to in a yeah, bit. Yeah. But um yeah, so it's interesting where you're actually at in the world in your job. It's yeah. <laughs> like not at all where anybody would project.
1: Yeah. Ever. Um that was a record where I was like, oh, okay, well, um, I guess I, I guess I failed, which I didn't care, like, I mean, I cared, but I didn't, I was like, uh, ah, well, every time I'm making a record, it's that thing of like, <laughs> I feel like the movie director who's like, all right, we got to get this shot now. And then the guy's behind me and he's like, the studio is cutting off your money. They are towing away the car and everything. And I'm like, let's just get the shot. Like, (laughs) doesn't matter. All that matters is this moment. And, uh, and, uh, that was a record where I was like going whole hog where everybody's going to be in San Francisco. This is going to be my, which again, it was weirdly also sort of this elegiac record for like a world now gone, you know, when my first record came out, I was a local artist in san francisco i I, rem- I played the New Year's Eve show at Bimbo's, which was like my dream venue that's like ninety years old and Duke Ellington and Ray Charles and everybody played there and half the world series winning San Francisco Giants were there, and it was written about in the society column in The Chronicle the next day like. But I knew that in five years, everyone who lived in San Francisco wouldn't have known about that show or cared that the Giants won the World Series that year or known what the San Francisco (laughs) Chronicle (laughs) Society section was or any of that stuff. So it was almost this, like, portraits of a gone world thing. Like, uh, and we were recording at Hyde Street Studios in the room that had been basically abandoned but was the original Wally Hyder room where, like, Santana cut Abraxas and Cal Jader made all these great records and, like, that room was a clone of this. Again, we're getting into like music history stuff, but it was a clone of United Western here in LA, which is where Half Pet Sounds was cut and like the Mamas and the Papas and Sam Cooke records. and, And so for me getting into that room and getting all those players was sort of the last blank check I had even when I knew I was like, I really was in a lot of trouble. (laughs) And then the ecosystem of the industry changed. I mean, I got really lucky. I mean, now I just consider myself lucky to have even started when I did. But I remember having a conversation with um, my manager's assistant, like co-manager. And I said, who... Who do you like? Like, sometimes I would just be like, what do you... Because I know that I'm not like everybody else. So I would ask other people. I'd rely on them to tell me what, you know, who's the tastemaker right now? And she said, well, mostly it's just like, there's a couple Instagram accounts. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm fucked. Like, this is yeah. it. I start listing influencers. Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> but not even like, not not bad influencers. It was like, you know, she was like... um what's the Detroit guys, wolf, wolf Eyes? The, the like, meme... They're basically like a meme band. <laughs> but it was something where I was like, <laughs> what? Like, what aren't you going to say a magazine or, like, a writer or something? <laughs> so I just knew that I was done for uh, when I was working on that. Not when I was writing it, but when I was starting to get it together and, like, roll it out. I remember the day... The day the record came out, we had no reviews. Like, nobody reviewed it or or... And and the argument was, uh, who, what did, well, Drake has a record out today and um, this other, like it was, and Bonnie Vare. And so you're not going to get any reviews. And after that, I was like, reviews aren't going to matter anymore because I don't think this is ever going to happen again like this way, you know? And I went on a tour. I went on like a 30-day tour with no real good press or, and that's how you die when you're, you're, you're kind of left to wither on the vine.
0: Well, I'm curious how you work as a collaborator mm. and in your work. Um, let you know, let's use Kachi as a case study. The next dog I get is 100% going to be named Kachi. Okay.
1: <laughs> she give me Kachi.
0: Night long. She give me Kachi. Night long. But um, you know with a, a concept like that um, how did, how did that tune come together? And, and then also, like, how in your work, like, did you want to collaborate with Leon? And I know you guys unveiled it at some shows. Yeah. Like how, did, how does that collaboration happen? And then maybe we'll talk about record producing.
1: That, that that was a definite, <clears throat> that was another place and time kind of situation, which I don't think could happen again. Um, you know, Leon and I met, on his first tour when he was opening for Lord Huron. And, um, I think we were both on each other's radars and like, you know, I remember talking to like Josh, his like drummer and producer where like they, they, I think they were a fan of my records. And, um, I was just hanging out in Austin, a lot at the time. And, and I was, I mean, I was almost going to move out there because that was when I had no home. <laughs> there you go. Um, and it was cheap and like I had friends there and it oh, was... Killer music town. Great. So
0: many cool things happening.
1: But I got that old San Francisco tickle where I knew that it wasn't really going to, it was too good to be true and there was too many signposts that like tech stuff was happening and over expansion and like the rapid gentrification thing. Like I think it's been really interesting traveling since my first record came out in 2011, I've witnessed the beige gentrification of every major metropolis in the whole world. Where I, I, I it's almost like a David Lynch dream, where I like walk out of one all white and bleached wood room with uh, with minimalist decor and. And green uh, yeah, you found succulents all, you, and I walk into the next one. Yeah, you <laughs> found all the
0: works. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh,
1: whether it's, you know, in Melbourne or it's in Cologne, Germany or it's in Austin, Texas or, you know, it's in Indianapolis. Um, uh, Austin, I was spending a lot of time there and um, we just got drunk and sang Sam Cooke songs for like five hours one night. Uh, like at Seaboys, C- boys which is a great club there. um, And we we were in touch, like, and we were just hanging out a lot at that time. Uh, like, when he was in town out here, we would go out and um, when I was in Texas, you know, I'd stay with him. And on the trip that, we, we actually wrote kind of a handful of songs. Oh, don't tease me. <laughs> yeah. Don't tease me. Texas Sun was already enough of a tease. <laughs> uh there is one really great song called there ain't no secret that I really wish we could have done but it could have only been done at that time. Um and we quite literally it's how it's how like this is my philosophy as a producer. Uh like my really good friend Matt Correa is the drummer for the Laws and like I worked with them. And um, sometimes when you're with somebody, and this is a this is like the relationship that Matt and I would have, which is like you, you're not just flattering your friend, but you're sort of like hyping each other up. If somebody has a good idea, you don't let them get rid of that idea. You're like, no, man, keep going, and uh, and you and. When one does that to the other, you, you get the faith in yourself to, you go like, well, I thought that was a dumb idea. I think those people are really significant in your life. It's sort of like the, uh, it's like the um, Jack Kerouac and um, Neil, uh, what's his name from on the road. It's like true friendship is also like inspiring each other to like, Achieve, not in competition. And uh, I like being that as a producer. Because being a producer means that you're the fan of the song before the song even exists. And Kachi, as a writer, when he said that, he just said, she gave me Kachi. And I was like, all night long, you know? (laughs) And uh, and, uh, I already had, like, a little riff and some, like... I had those changes in my head, and it's, like, it's really nice when it happens with someone else because it happens so fast. I mean, Rambo, the photographer. Yeah,
0: fantastic work. Yeah, That
1: was written at her house. She mm-hmm. has, like, photos of us coming up with it as it's happening. She took video of us doing, like, she has, like, video footage of us demoing and writing a song. It's a really simple song. Like, I've had some funny conversations where I've also had people be like, "Man, that song is stupid," and I'm like, "No shit, really?" Well, you know, <laughs> Wow. All guitar I'll, teachers back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm a. I believe in thinking when you got to think, but like sometimes you don't have to think a whole lot. And if you if you project that onto something, you probably don't think enough when you're supposed to be thinking. Um. So that song just was, like, fun. That was having fun, like, with somebody. Those those were two... That was me and Leon, like, being very open with each other and having... Just, like, I guess what you're supposed to have when you play music together, which is, like, a good time.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's healthy and it's just, you know, vulnerability amongst, you know, men in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, the way Leon and his, his aesthetic has moved across the records and who he plays with and who he speaks to, I think, is, is just such a beautiful thing.
1: Mm-hmm. And so I, I
0: think that to share that, you know, starting from singing Sam Cooke to
1: All Night Long. Yeah, I think I think with Leon, Leon is following his muse. And Leon is finding out a lot of stuff about himself. Mm -hmm. And I really support him in that. Like, I think that that is the beauty of, like, Leon's trajectory right now. And I think trajectories are different than careers. Because people who play music and, and do commit their labor to it, sometimes labor and product is conflated as being the same when it's not. And I think that trajectories of ideas, which is what makes this a unique sort of trade, is why this is all special. Like why getting to play music is special because it's sort of like film and it's it's a little like painting, but not really like painting because painting. It's it's incredibly interior. You're by yourself. You're working stuff out. You're not really responding to the market. I like music because it's so dynamic and it is this nexus of labor and creativity and imagination, but also like community. And I, I've always been really into the notion of like, when you really connect with somebody else, they may not even have contributed an idea, but if they inspired the idea, like, that's 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 like magic. Like that's a that's something that's way bigger than. Guy sat in my room and like I'm a genius and I came up with this stuff. Yeah, everything's from scratch. Everything oh, yeah. is
0: masterminded. Everything's like you know the j- auteur j- myth. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, I think um, I think maybe I read something about it when you first got in touch with the laws and they were planning on going to some Pro Tools studio <laughs> and you're like, no, like we're gonna do it on tape and it's gonna be great. And so talk about your imagination at that point like did you have a really clear thought to like how that record would come together it just seems like you just wouldn't execute it in some way
1: that record is like Brewster's millions for me. That record was like, I was, that that record's the sound of me being absolutely in love with that band and that project and those guys and, and everything to do with it. And the first time, all right, so like the background of this is Matt and I met the first year that we were in San Francisco together. We were both like native Southern California sons who were like more interested in, regional histories and we had very similar music tastes but like on different ends of the spectrum and you know we both had this thing where we grew up with like punk rock ethics but we liked much broader stuff and and we both were kind of like fish out of water kids where we didn't we weren't exactly like what people thought we were or where we were from. And uh, San Francisco was like perfect for us because it was this like big, It was the dip before the second dot com thing where there were tons of we would be going to soul nights and trying to talk to girls and, and, you know, everybody was on drugs and everybody's rent was under five hundred dollars kind of place, you know except for me, I was the guy who like didn't drink
0: well, yeah, exactly yeah. I, um, I guess you wanted time travel
1: yeah. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> and like there was four or five nights a week to go out to, and you could you could work a jo- like I had two jobs and and there were all these great ideas, and like you know the internet hadn't completely dictated like how everybody looked or talked or acted yet. Which, you know, not to be sentimental or nostalgic, but that was just a nice... I'm so glad that, like, I didn't have a cell phone then and, like, you know, nobody else did, really. Yeah, and there's so many, you know, it
0: seems like there's a lot of... um this, like, cross-cultural thing going on. Just, like, a lot of scenes influencing each other. Like, yes. I'm also an enormous fan of, like, John Dwyer and Tyson yeah. Gall and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. Well, that and, was
1: percolating there. Yeah, Like, for me, the OCs were the annoying loud band that would play it at, like, two out of three parties. You ended up at it and it'd be like, okay, they're going to play now. We should leave because it's going to be, like, way too loud, you know? <laughs> Dude, I love that
0: so much. I'm, for anyone that... That knows me. That's the band I've seen the live seen live the most. <laughs> and the, f- live, I think the first show I saw was their f- first tour doing the double
1: drum kit thing. Yeah. And yeah. I was just smashed between those two guys and, you know, um, rewired after that. I John's a, a, a really nice guy and I like him and he's been really cordial to me over the years. And, like, you know, we've never had any really deep conversations. I know tons of people who are very close with him. Ty, Ty I actually... Like, him and Charlie would come to, like, my high school band shows. Like, I knew them from Southern California. Mm-hmm. Um, I've known...
0: <laughs> well, you
1: guys have a similar approach to, like, doing the work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah.
0: workhorses. Yeah. Like, you know, talking about studios, talk about labels, talk right. about pressing vinyl, talk about going on the road and working with players. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's something that, you know, in the age of so many people that are, you know, um, more isolated and that are having 10 producers rather than 10 players...
1: Yeah, I think that that's a thing that has a lot more to do with having a brand than a vision. And um, I think vision has always been sort of the thing that I I perceive as what drives interesting, um, what do you call it, postmodern projects. Mm -hmm. After bands stopped or artists, this is also what I think is interesting and like we'll sidestep here for a second. Uh, All the records that I love, almost all of them, They're like, I mean, and and most of what I like from the 40s to the 70s is black music. They remind me of the split in acting. That is the pre-Brando, post-Brando James Dean thing. Sure. So Chuck Jackson or Garnet Mims is delivering you a song in the tradition that also like a jazz tune would be, which is like they're telling a story, they're using melisma, they're using everything they've ever learned being a singer. They're not like, I'm doing a Chuck Jackson-style project that's a persona, that's a concept that I'm delivering to you, which I think came with the marketing of rock music and then that bled into all projects afterwards, whether it's R&B or hip-hop or... You know, there's always there's there's narratives now assigned to almost everything and like mystiques and all this shit. The records that I liked were performative and they're about performance. Now, the stuff that's interesting now is vision, (laughs) because there are so many active decisions you can make. It's like being again, being a film director. Are you making the film in black and white or are you making it in color? Why? How are you coloring? You know, you have to think about all these things now. Because your record could sound like garbage if you just use what technology you have.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, which, again, is like that sweet spot, I think, in American music where technology and craft and ability all hit an intersection and we've been sort of like recovering from that ever since. Absolutely, yeah. With the ease of everything all yeah. of a sudden happening,
0: creating just this oversaturated, similarly-minded stuff. Yeah. But then, yeah, you go back into the root of the song of the idea of the concept, film, music, otherwise. Like, you got to give a shit.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to feel it, you know? So, Ty, so, yeah, the San Francisco scene was, like, there were DIY bands like that. There were, I mean, I was honestly at five DJ nights a week, probably. Dancing or hanging out, checking out records. That's where me and all my friends were. Yeah, what's the upstairs
0: spot in San Francisco? It's, like, not the cat. It's like a, but it is a cat. I think the bar is the name of a cat. Uh,
1: brr. Come to you talk about the Edinburgh Castle?
0: No, it's over by Slim's and it's just this upstairs joint and they had a pretty wicked soul that I went to a few times. I'll chase the
1: name. Oh, Um well, that used to be 330 Rich, but then it, it's gone through like three iterations of different names. Yeah, there you yeah. Go. Makes sense. Um <laughs> And like, so Matt, Matt and I were just kind of like running around then and like, you know, Matt was getting his degree in urban planning and I was getting my degree in literature. And then I had the opportunity to do a straight exchange where I paid my tuition to San Francisco State, which I was, a, uh, when you're like, a, I, I like, you know, I was a bright kid. So I did the like Cal State tests, And when you do that, basically my tuition was like nothing. And I had the opportunity to go to England which none of, nobody in my family went out of state or country, okay. really.
0: Yeah, that's a big move.
1: So I went there, and Matt moved back to L.A., and we wrote letters to each other. Like, we have these great letters that are just, like, it's just, it's about music. It's about, like, the people we knew. It's about the places we are. And it's it's a continuing thing of, like, what we were both passionate about and, like, what we were both into in terms of arts, film. I remember there was a great, There was this zine called All Summer Long that was, like, a really deeply researched sort of, like, sub Beach Boys, like, uh, Ugly Things-style magazine that was about, like, Southern California music. And he mailed it to me, and it cost so much, and I was so impressed that, like, a friend cared enough to send me something. And he wrote me that he had gotten a job... Well, he was working in a pub in San Francisco, but he was working down here. And then he's like, Yeah, I'm hanging out with these guys. You'd really like them. Everybody has like great tastes. Like uh, they're into like a lot of the same records we like. And um, a year later, I got back to San Francisco and he's like, Yeah, we still kept up. And he was like, Yeah, I started a band with these guys. And, uh, you know, none of us are very good. <laughs> cuz like Matt hadn't played drums before that band and it was it was just a thing where you like have a you have a friend and you really I just loved always hearing what he was up to or like talking to him and he inspired me and I I'd like to think that I inspired him a little bit sometimes but um it's kind of like when you have a really good friend when you're a kid and you're like when we grow up we're going to have a restaurant and there's going to be this much space over here and we're going to have this on the wall and the food is going to be like this and everybody's going to love yeah, it. food's amazing. There's a cereal bar. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you want. But it was <laughs> just... That period of time, I really never wanted to hear a band with a bad drummer ever again. Because, like, that was what... I mean, I was also like... At that point, I had been in San Francisco. I went... Like I was in England and there was this really great band from Glasgow of all places that I kind of followed around that had like an amazing R&B drummer who like clearly really studied like like pre-funk R&B like and jazz style drumming, or... super light touch mm-hmm. animal skins and and the thing that blew me away was they were a band I never needed to wear earplugs while watching ever and I saw them in 10 different places and like everybody was just super tasteful and like but it wasn't sterile. It was just this thing where I was like, oh, I've been around all these people forever that just have drummers that hit too hard. <laughs> and um, and Matt was playing exactly like a Back From the Grave record. He was playing like exactly like all the records that we were always like, why doesn't anybody play like this? Even all these bands that are called Garage Rock Revival bands or whatever, like... They just suck because their drummer sounds like... It's always that thing where it's like they have a cool front man who writes like something that's kind of this and they have a bass player who writes like... And they look good except the drummer is always the last person that they like deal with. And to me that band was a... It was like a true collective and and to me I felt like Matt was really driving that band. Like I don't want to start any controversy. I doubt any of the guys are listening to the show... But, like, it was a four-man band, but what was really key for me was that they all, like, it's not, like, a blues nerd tone thing, but they were just tonally, totally in line, and they had a unified vision of, like, you listen to that band and you know what their vision is. And, um, you know, they were just trying to make the scene in, like, L.A., which was in my opinion, pretty corny. Like the new Best Coast album came out and the smell was really happening and they were talking about recording with some people that made records like with Abe Vigoda and like these bands. And I'm like, do you like how that sounds? Like, it, why, you know? Yeah, capabilities. Yeah, and that, um, that was a thing where I was just like, I don't know why I got so... I mean, making Someplace was like my test run to be like, all right, I can do this because I wasted my own time making something that I liked. So now I can be like, look guys, two of you were there. By the way, like on some place it's it's two members of the Alalas. So like that time when I was making my first record and that record everybody's on each other's records. It was all kind of like the same space and time, but you know, they they also had their whole world that I got to come into it was just more like we can just do this you know we can do this guys like you don't have to don't don't look at anybody else that's successful what's funny is you mentioned sub pop earlier and i remember one member being like i really want to be on sub pop i I, we should work with a sub pop producer and i was just like why what's in a
0: name yeah 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 Yeah, i think there's just this beautiful wash when i you know, listen to your music and I listen to those Laws records. And so now I'm curious, you know, as you're going through mixing the live record and LP5's coming around, and, and also just how you're looking at your job. I mean, really that sparked, you know, me feeling comfortable to reach out to you for this was just my personal connection to Cocktail Hour. Oh, right on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had some haymakers thrown at me before quarantine. Yeah. I had a romantic relationship end and, you know, turn into what's now becoming a good, beautiful friendship. But I also, you know, my folks have been, you know, gone for some years and I just, uh, my work was all postponed and all of that. And then when I caught on that you're doing this broadcast, it became like my place where I found this presence and this joy, you know, every day that, um, really got me out of my head and into my body. And, um, also excited me, uh, in terms of just learning about more artists and just kind of going into those archives and you feeling akin to your music and the fact that like, what's in your collection. Okay. It's maybe your mom's stuff, your dad's stuff, your stuff along the way. So as you're going forward, like with these next couple records and also looking at yourself as a job or a business the labor that you're engaging in now I think is so fascinating you know mm-hmm. poster club you got the glasses coming out you obviously are gonna have records and get back on the road when you can like where did that stuff come from these kind of like extracurricular things that to me speak to like what your career is mm-hmm. it, it is all encompassing you're not just the player you're not just the producer it's kind of this all encompassing
1: thing that seems very authentic and clear well I'm first of all it's really nice to hear you say that because the reality of this whole thing is, is that, um, we were already living in like one of the most lonely and alienated periods of like, uh, the modern world. And then this, I recognized as like an incredibly lonely time for almost everyone. And I honestly did it on a whim because I was trying just to think about what, what, would stop me from like breaking down. And Cocktail Hour is, or was when I started doing it, because it kind of, it it did become a little too rote and I started facing too many technical difficulties.
0: Your perseverance through it, you've been a champ. <laughs> you've been a champ. I, have, Bro,
1: I, I have so little patience and so little love for all the companies that we use as a platform, but are really just massive data farms out to own us. I feel like someone (laughs) should do a dissertation on what you've had to battle, you know, (laughs) keeping the stream alive. Um, I wanted to do it because the third prong of all this and of all my career is the record shop, uh, Rookies in San Francisco, which I worked at. I went into... I worked at it from age eighteen till basically when I went on tour on the first record. I used to have backing vocal rehearsals in there, like when we were putting together the first songs. Um, half of the band from times all gone were all just customers from rookies, um, and Dick Vivian, who owns it, is sort of like another mentor to me. Like he, he taught me a lot about the day to day. Realities. He taught me about how, like, it sucks to say that a business is a community, but how to be a part of this, like, larger stream of life and energy that has to do with being on a block in a neighborhood, but also with a citywide and countywide customer base and a worldwide, like, a global customer base and among sort of a culture that I'm reluctant to call a subculture, but, like, that's that's another thing about music that I fell in love with. And in a funny way, Rookies ties back to that book, the Guralnik Sweet Soul music book I was talking about, because so many of the first indies that made all the music that I love, they were, you know, a Sam Phillips-type guy who was one person who had a small... I don't even want to call it... Like, it happens to be a business, but it's a hub for ideas and culture to flow through and like maybe that's the american dream like i'm very skeptical that it works that way anymore like i don't think that capital helps but the shop i was really depressed when all this started happening and i was just as like confused as everyone else and i was like well what do i really miss i i fucking miss it being like five o'clock and like making drinks with my friends and we would just play records for three hours. (laughs) You know, whether it's Dick or it's somebody that I haven't seen in three years who's from Germany or it's Matt and the Laws are in town or it's John Blunk who runs Sweater Funk and Noel and all these great DJs that I... You know, like, the one thread that's gone through my life after I got really uprooted going on tour and starting to have a career was, like, being with uh, just my friends and playing music, like... And, uh... (laughs) it makes you focus. Like, it makes you really pay attention to what people are doing in those songs. And those friends, we would get together and talk about, like, the writer or the player or this bridge. It's that shit when you're together and you're like, this is the best part in the movie. Like, here it comes, you know? And um, so I really wanted to do that just to have something normal and like normal for everybody else I guess and I was overwhelmed that like so many people seem to enjoy it and I felt incredible pressure from uh the industry to do something stupid online regularly (laughs) where they're like (laughs) you know I gotta say like most press or promotion I've done in my career is like under absolute duress and often in my mind actually interferes with the vision of what I'm trying to purvey. But to the team that worked on it, they're like, well, what matters is is we got you on this thing. Sure. Like, and I'm like, yeah, but if it sucks, that makes half of the people who just saw that go like, I don't get what the deal is with this guy, whatever. Okay, I'm and, definitely not going to listen to him now. Yeah, and is kind of a blip too. Yeah, yeah. and it's a blip. Mm, and, it's, yeah. and, and I realized that part of the death drive of content is that you have to be part of the massive churn of like gristle just to keep that machine running. So if you make a bunch of meaningless content, um, then you contribute to having no meaning. And uh, they were like, well, you could play unplugged versions of your songs. We, we could do an at-home concert. And I'm like, with my nine band members who, how am I going to pay them? Um, and then I was like, well, what am I actually good at? i Playing I'm good at loving records uh and drinking (laughs) while I'm doing it. It just was like it was the one way that I could try to um be like still connected to like what mattered to me. And uh you know, it, it is this feeling like for a minute I felt like I had a radio show and then it got a little complicated because it just couldn't be smooth. And um, and then I had to, like—I had—the live record is two—it's a double—it's two LPs, and then I have another LP, and I was under all this pressure to, like, remotely mix and master these records, which I've never done that that way before. So we were just trying to, like, ride it out in addition to all the technical difficulties. Now, the merch stuff, I just try to think about what would make my friends smile and, like, come up with something that's not— a t-shirt you know <laughs> yeah so yeah. and the posters like it's really cool because maddie who is doing that that's at liner Posters. she's I, I think she wants to go by liner m liner um we've had a really close relationship for a couple years working on a lot of my visual stuff because i always had an issue with that like it's the same way I feel about doing content or making videos. I didn't start making records to do that stuff. So don't expect me to make something that's a a meme or a viral anything. And Maddie's somebody that cares about art as much as I care about sound. So it's a good way to work together. Yeah, so we're not going to see like your Mentos-inspired music video <laughs> anytime soon. From-
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Good.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So I just, I mean... It might have been a streak and it might not happen the same way again, but a lot of my life and career at this point has been like accepting place and time stuff. And I think that especially at the start of all this, it made a lot of sense to me to be doing that almost every day, you know?
0: Yeah, well, I can, you know, on behalf of all my friends and people I share it with, like, thank you. I mean, uh, I've had some, some lake hangs I've had, you know, uh, opening tailgates behind two friends, cars (laughs) hanging out on the sidewalk, you know, just the, the, the the way in which people I think have been in touch by it and the way that it's just made them feel in the present and feel like their soul's awakening and that at some point things are going to be okay.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I certainly hope so. (laughs) I hope they're going to be okay. We'll see, you know, but, um, You know, I'm glad that it made you feel like you could reach out too because that's that's another part of it, I guess. It's like, that's actually, that means it's doing better than any of the other junk they usually have me do to try to promote something. Um, Because I'm not really promoting. If it's, I feel like all my career is that if I'm doing the right thing, I never feel like I'm um, trying to sell anything because I already believe in what I'm doing so much that like, I don't care if you spend money on it. Like, I'm just grateful that I got to do it or I got to be a part of it.
0: That was my conversation with Nick Waterhouse, recorded in Topinga, California. Thank you, Nick, for being such a wonderful guest. Be sure to pick up all of his records, including his newest album, Promenade Blue. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep it Cash Pro.
1: Just like I'm all you take to